Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. In this episode of the Sollier Pride podcast, we have Dr. Jessica Sally Riccardi. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at the University of Maine and is the principal investigator of the Bear Lab, Brain Injury Education and Rehabilitation. Her research interests in the long-term impacts of childhood brain injury, particularly on cognitive communication and in high-risk groups such as justice-involved youth and children living in rural communities. She is passionate about mentoring students in the classroom and lab. to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good afternoon, Jessica. Hi. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So tell people a little bit about yourself. Uh, my name is Jess Riccardi. I'm a first year faculty member at the University of Maine in the Communication Sciences and Disorders Department. I finished my doctoral program at Case Western last May and am running into the second semester of teaching and doing research. I focus on childhood brain injury from the perspective of speech language pathology and do uh, some varied projects in that area. Um, I'm also the PI of the Bear Lab on campus, brain injury education and rehabilitation. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. So where, where should we start? What do you want to dive into today? We can start with research. That's the easiest topic for me to talk about. So we can yeah. start there. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. Uh, so my research looks at long-term outcomes after childhood brain injury, really with the hopes of informing services and practices for speech-language pathologists and other rehab specialists. I'm a certified speech-language pathologist and have worked in the field throughout my PhD program after getting my fellowship finished. 
um, and have a real passion for not only educating our students, our grad students in cognitive communication needs after childhood brain injury, but making sure that our rehab professionals and educational professionals are also equipped and prepared. So the research that we do is quite applied um, and ranges from some more foundational understanding that we really need in childhood brain injury to looking at effective services and those, uh, those types of implementation strategies. So we're getting off the ground running here with some research projects and diving into some high-risk groups, groups that are at risk for long-term negative outcomes at disparate rates or proportions in other populations. So here in Maine, we're really focused on rural health care, but we also dive into the juvenile justice system, individuals experiencing family violence, and other areas. Okay. Are there, so when you talk about, when you talk about brain injury, childhood brain injury is, how is that defined? Is there, is there specific incidents that happens? So brain, acquired brain injury at large includes every type of brain injury you can think of. So from traumatic to non-traumatic causes, what happens in childhood brain injury is that oftentimes those non-traumatic causes show really different types of effects and trajectories of recovery than traumatic injuries. Um, non-traumatic injuries can be things like near drownings to suffocation to child abuse, uh, which again have a lot of contextual factors around them that make it really difficult to study and really difficult to study alongside our traumatic injuries. So my lab generally focuses in traumatic injuries, so sports-related accidents, uh, motor vehicle accidents, falls, um, assaults, any anything that is that outside force that's causing a brain injury. Uh, but certainly we do try to serve both areas. Interesting. All right. Yeah. So let's, let's, I guess let's talk about how is childhood brain injury different from adults? So childhood brain injury often has this myth around it that kids recover really well from a brain injury. They're resilient, they're developing, they have all these mechanisms in place. And that's actually not true. And a myth that is, I think, slowly being dispelled in our field. And hopefully our, our new graduates are aware of that. So generally, after an adult brain injury, these adults recover fairly well um, and are able to return back to their life pre-injury. And this is because they have a large cognitive reserve. They've developed all these skills before their injury that they're able to still use or at least recover more efficiently than children. Sometimes they say the last to develop is the first to go after a brain injury. So those higher level skills that are developing closer to the time of injury are first to go or first to um, be damaged or in deficit after an injury. So when we're dealing with kids, we know that these um, kids are developing, they're learning skills, they don't have this large reserve of skills. And so when an injury happens, they haven't learned these skills already. So it's all new learning after an injury for them. And we know new learning is most difficult, whether you're a child or an adult, as opposed to relearning after a brain injury. And so the problem that we most often see with these kids is that because their new learning is really difficult, the deficits that they show after an injury are often delayed or what we call a latent presentation of these deficits. So they might recover really well in the short term and look like they don't have any problems, but then years later, they start falling behind when they hit these critical developmental points. So if we think about that transition in third, fourth grade from learning to read to reading to learn, that can be really hard for a kid with a brain injury, but we're not always linking it back to that brain injury. It could be, oh, they just have a reading disability or they have a learning language learning problem. Um, and so we are really losing kids along that pipeline and maybe not providing the best services for them down the road. Interesting. 
Yeah, that 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 is news to me. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. What, I, I guess what what got you interested in this area of research, if it's not too personal of a question? No. Uh, so I was an undergraduate at the University of New Hampshire and taking the classic neurogenic intro to neuro course as an undergraduate student. And our entire course was focused on adults with a really brief mention that, oh, children get brain injuries too. And I had asked my professor at the time and said, well, why don't we talk about kids? Why don't we learn about them in this class? And his answer was pretty honest and I think still holds true is that we just don't know a lot about kids in these neuro-based populations, particularly brain injury. And as an eager undergraduate, that made me feel excited and also uh, wanting to answer some questions in the field. It so happens that that following summer, I worked at a summer camp for kids with social and emotional difficulties. And one of my kids on my little workload team had a brain injury three to four years prior and was showing some really significant social behavioral needs. Um, and I was really able to work with his parents to better understand, oh, this is what a child with a brain injury actually looks like. So those, both of those things contributed to my interest in that area. And I was able to pursue some research opportunities as an undergrad that kept feeding that passion and slowly followed it along to where I am today. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. So, so what are some of the biggest challenges in childhood brain injury? So in terms of research, the biggest challenge I think we're all feeling is recruitment. Yeah. It's really difficult to track these kids long term, and there's not really a pathway to be able to follow these kids. And you're crossing over systems which I think leads into one of our biggest problems in terms of providing services as speech language pathologists is that these kids usually start in an educational system. If we're talking about a school age kid, they experience a brain injury and that pulls them into the hospital system and their service there. And then at discharge, very few places have a pathway to connect them back to the school system. So the continuity of services is really challenging. And I think some recognition of speech-language pathologists feeling confident that they have the skills to service these children in a way that is meaningful and evidence-based. Yeah. Well, how would you describe our role with, with these kids? Sure. So I'm teaching neurogenic communication disorders this semester, so our first lecture is prepped. I think we have to approach these kids knowing that there is a cognitive disruption, right? The definition of a brain injury is that some component of the neurocognitive system is damaged. And if we're able to bring that approach to cognitive communication, we might be able to better service the presenting needs of this child. And so sometimes we give the example of a child with a brain injury might have problems reading. Well, are they actually having problems with reading and language comprehension? Or is it some aspect of cognitive communication that's preventing them from reading accurately or appropriately at each level? And so if we can approach it with that lens, we can still use the same speech pathology techniques and services we would provide to any other child who's on our caseload, but we need to be making sure we're targeting the actual thing that needs to be targeted and not just the superficial or easy to target more routine thing. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Talk a little bit about your research and what you've got going on and how you hope that will contribute to the greater SLP practice. Sure. So our lab has kind of two different lines of work going on. One is understanding these foundational pieces of long-term outcomes after brain injury. And I'm particularly interested in cognitive communication. Uh, my dissertation was trying to understand or explore cognitive fatigue after childhood brain injury. What we know is that kids with brain injury generally do 
pretty well in controlled settings. Um, so if we think about standardized assessments, kids with brain injury generally do a, a good job, don't show any obvious um, needs or deficits. But then over time or in more complex environments, we see their performance deteriorate. So I'm really interested in understanding how we can prevent and how we can, quote unquote, treat or um, manage cognitive fatigue over time to support these kids' performances. It's something that ASHA says that we have a role in, but there's not great work, even in adult brain injury, at understanding that role of fatigue. But of course, fatigue is just one small component that interacts with many other uh, areas of functioning, both within our scope of practice and outside. So understanding executive functioning skills, language and social communication skills, and really just contributing to what we don't know about childhood brain injury right now that can make us better clinicians and target better practices. Yeah. The other area of my work is looking at providing services and ensuring a continuity of services for these high-risk groups. So I'm interested in making sure that children are screened for brain injury, that we know that they've had a history of a brain injury and are assessed and treated appropriately and connected to services as needed. What about actual like speech or swallowing? You know, are these treated any differently than, yeah. So in terms of our kids, most of the time we're seeing some like motor speech or swallowing needs in our most severe brain injuries. And now that's an, an overstatement, but um, certainly is seen in these more severe injuries that are treated pretty consistent with how you would treat an adult with a brain injury or other acquired disorders. Those, those treatment principles don't go out the window just because they're kids, but thinking about functionality. Um, kids with brain injury, similar to many populations that we treat, don't have great generalization skills. So we want to make sure we're doing everything in context and, and supporting generalization. Interesting. Thank you. Yeah, you mentioned a little bit that you hope that your research will contribute to policy. Can you go into that a little bit more? Sure. Um, so I took a course in policy during my PhD program and was able to do some additional kind of independent studies in that in-child policy. Yeah, I will say it's an uphill battle and it's a a career long goal, I think, to influence policy. But I like to loop that together of influencing both practice and policy, because I think sometimes that change in practice will then show the need to change policy. So in terms of looking at institutional practices or organizational practices and policies, I'm really hopeful that we can, my lab and my collaborators can be leaders in terms of showing what the evidence says and then integrating that into practice and policy. Um, So something we've been working on is really showing the the need for that hospital to school connection for kids with brain injury. We know that it's best practice that that there is collaboration and communication between the hospital team and then the school team. But that's not always happening. And I would say is most often not happening at the the level that would be supportive of the child. So that's one area. And then overall, just looking at raising awareness is really the first step to changing policy. So here in the state, raising awareness of our needs of kids with brain injury um, to then lay the groundwork to make some policy changes long term. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. So what, what are you working on now? What are some up and coming projects that you've got going on? So we have IRB approval and I'm waiting for my students to get in the lab this semester. We started classes yesterday, so they're they're slowly trickling in. Um, And we have two fairly large projects going on. One is looking at simulated assessment of cognitive communication skills after childhood brain injury. So I use eye tracking and pupillometry, and we are looking at using 
more of a functional assessment of decision-making and academic participation for kids with brain injury. Um, and so we're pulling kids with brain injury into the lab to complete that assessment. It's pretty clinician-friendly. It's currently on a uh, Google website, a Google web page, and the child interacts with that web page to make different decisions. And we're trying to understand if this could be a better functional tool that mimics real life for clinicians to use for kids with brain injury. Um, we're also recruiting some clinicians to complete a study telling us, is that helpful? Does that seem user-friendly? And get some feedback there. Our other area is diving into understanding kids with brain injury who live in rural communities. And we're focused here in Maine, but recruiting across the U.S. because we know it's difficult to capture those kids. Yeah. So we're trying to understand for kids who have been diagnosed with a brain injury, are they and their parents satisfied with the services they receive? What services did they receive and how do they feel their outcomes are? Cool. Awesome. I love that you're able to, technology is great when you're able to expand across the U.S. to get this data. So that's wonderful. Yeah. My students are really excited about staying in Maine. And I was like, well, we got to get that bigger recruitment, yes. <laughs> recruitment net going. Yeah. yeah. How, how, many, how many kids do you think you'll be able to get through your study? For in-person experiments, it's always an uphill challenge. We're really shooting for this to be kind of like a multi-year recruitment, getting students, children in as we can. Um, and ultimately, we'd like to have about 15 children with brain injury, 15 without, to complete the pilot assessment and then increase that sample size even more once we get feedback from both them and our clinicians. Cool. For a rural health study, we're really looking, we're really hopeful for 150 kids with brain injury who are in a rural community, and then 150 kids who are either in an urban or suburban setting. Talk to me a little bit about what's the, why are you studying rural versus urban? What, what things are you looking for there? So we're trying to understand what might be a predictor to follow-up services, as well as evidence-based school service provision for kids with brain injury. Our knowledge of childhood brain injury is based out of only a few research groups. And those research groups are largely based in urban settings that have a large children's hospital. And so there's a little bit of research out there trying to understand the difference based on socioeconomic status of saying return to follow-up care or even transition from hospital to school setting. There's not anything that I know of, and, and likely there's not anything out there understanding the impact of rural status on healthcare, specifically for kids with brain injury. And we know that children in more rural settings are less likely to have a medical home and receive consistent medical care. So we would suspect that that would be the same for kids with brain injury. Here in Maine, we have a lot of rural communities. And we unfortunately only have one pediatric uh, trauma center, which is in the southern part of the state, which is about a six hour drive to the northern part of the state. And so it's a particularly interesting group to look at in our state that certainly applies to other states is just particularly dramatic here um, to understand what follow up services look like and what needs to be done to make sure these kids get services. I like to say to people that we know these kids are in schools. And we know schools have speech language pathologists and other educational providers. Um, so the services could be there, but how can we connect and what are the barriers for families for that? Awesome. Awesome. This is great work, Jessica. Thank you so much. Yeah. So an article that I think is really helpful to conceptualize or understand cognitive communications was written by Lynn Turkstra and some other folks in in 2014, so it's a little bit older, um, but it's called Cognitive Communication Disorders in Children with Traumatic Brain Injury. 
And to me, I think it's a pretty user-friendly read that talks about some of these main points we've talked about today, like this latent presentation of deficits or this need to understand cognitive communication when looking at other areas of need, like language or social communication. Um, and Dr. Turkstra just does a great job outlining this for speech-language pathologists. So I'd really recommend people look at it. Dr. Turkstra is just a great person in our field who's been a real pioneer in childhood brain injury and I think just provides good resources for people. Cool. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And we will link that up in the show notes too as well. So So currently this semester, I'm teaching neurocognitive disorders for our graduate students. Um, I also teach research methods for our graduate and undergraduate students. And I'm really passionate about that evidence-based practice piece. So uh, as a new faculty member trying to balance course prep and all these other things while also envisioning what we want our speech language pathologists and audiologists to look like in years to come, seems like a pretty daunting task, but hopeful that we can make these clinicians, clinician researchers or research clinicians that feel like they can truly digest research materials and apply it to their practice. Um, So as part of our courses, that's something that I really try to integrate deeply, um, but particularly in neurogenic disorders where we know research is emerging all the time and is new and we don't have a great evidence base. I hope all our clinicians feel prepared in the years to come to do their own work in terms of reading research and hopefully finding the time to do that and integrate into their practice. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. I think we covered pretty much everything. This is great, Jessica. Yeah. So, so thank you so much for joining me. Do you have any final thoughts for people? If you're interested in participating in research or finding a collaborator to work with, if you're a clinician and just have a research question, please don't hesitate to reach out. I can speak for myself and a lot of my collaborators is that we're always excited to have someone who's kind of in the weeds and on the ground of the work we're trying to do. And we know clinicians are taxed on time to do research and researchers are often taxed on time to do clinical work. So I'd be thrilled to hear from any of you if you're interested in brainstorming and collaborating or just chatting generally on this topic. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jessica. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks so much. And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.